Midnight Facts for Insomniacs. <laughs> I just learned something. Oh, I'm having fun now. So, anyway, uh, go do that. And knowledge is power. Sleep is overrated. Wait, what? You... <laughs> what the fuck did you just do? <laughs> So on the most recent After Midnight episode, the one that featured our wives, we joked about creating a new podcast called Salt and Shade to air all of our bitterness, and today's episode would fit right in with that theme. This is Legendary Rivalries and Bitter Beefs. Ah, yes. Yes, yes. So before we get started, just a quick reminder that you can now rate podcasts on Spotify. So if you're listening on Spotify, as many insomniacs do, it's very easy to quickly scroll up and tap five stars. You you can't leave a review yet, but it does help us if you leave a rating. And also, don't forget about our brand new Patreon, where you can choose to be a Midnight Minion, a Midnight Menace, or a Midnight Maniac. Lots of options, lots of great perks. And most importantly, you'd be helping to keep the show afloat. Indeed. Now back to the episode. So do you have any favorite epic rivalries, Duncan? I mean, there's one that I've been researching, the whole uh, Tesla what's his bucket i invented the edison uh tesla edison rivalry oh that's a good one yeah and edison kind of a kind of a dick kind of a huge douche yeah, yeah. not nice to elephants either not nice to any animals he he no. didn't fuck around with any animals he spared nothing wasn't an elephant that he like electrocuted publicly or something that was the biggest one but he had people all over new york and all over every city that he would visit finding strays, uh, cats, dogs, whatever they could find to electrocute. Oh, yeah, fuck that guy. Yeah. Glad he's dead. Forever. (laughs) So anyway, let's begin with the most infamous and consequential rivalry of the modern era. I am referring, of course, to the epic battle for the hearts and stomachs of America, the war for sugary, caffeinated domination of vending machines and grocery stores, Coke versus Pepsi. We gave a brief overview of this rivalry in episode 45, Spectacular Failures, but I thought we'd dive a little bit deeper into the vicious cola wars and discuss all of the casualties and collateral damage. It was very vicious. <laughs> I'm, I'm just waiting to hear about the IRA-esque bombings that went <laughs> to on. I'm surprised it hasn't uh, made it there yet. You know what? Give it time. Yeah. So to be fair, to be fair, Coke was indeed the original cola, but it did not start as just a frivolous sugary thirst quencher. It was originally medicine, hmm. or at least it was a recreational drug cocktail masquerading as medicine. Coca-Cola was developed in 1886 in Atlanta, Georgia, by a Civil War veteran and pharmacist named John S. Pemberton. Pemberton had become an opium addict after he was stabbed in the chest by a saber while fighting for the South. Fuck me. Really? Yeah, really. I mean, I guess he wasn't stabbed by a saber. He he was stabbed by a human holding a saber. <laughs> sabers don't kill people. People <laughs> with sabers kill people. Thank you, NSA. National Saber Association? Yeah. It, it has been a while since anyone went on a saber rampage, I think. High time they started again, damn it. We're tired of all these rifle rampages. Come on, give That's us a just, saber rampage. Yeah, I am in favor of gun control, but it is true that, you know, people will rampage with whatever they have available. It just would be a lot less damage. Hmm. It is pretty amazing to me that just over 100 years ago, like barely over a century ago, uh, wars still involved hand-to-hand combat and stabbings. Bayonets, yeah. Yeah. Bayonet is great. That was just an example of like when you could not trust guns. You're just like, we got to have a backup plan because I don't know where this bullet's going to go. It might go backwards, in which case at least I can still stab a motherfucker. Right. I won't be able to use my right shoulder, but still. With whatever I've got left. Right. So Pemberton's chest injury was a source of chronic pain, which, as mentioned, led to him abusing morphine. 
Apparently morphine wasn't strong enough, because Pemberton would eventually experiment with alternate painkillers and chemical substances for pain management, which would eventually lead to the potent drug cocktail known as Coca-Cola, that for years would get Americans high AF and now just makes us fat. I mean, and well-caffeinated, come on. Coca-Cola wasn't initially called Coca-Cola. The first recipe was dubbed Dr. Tuggle's Compound Syrup of Globe Flour. <laughs> Again, thank you, PR department. Whoever the hell rebranded y'all, just shake their hand. That is the filthiest sentence I've ever spoken. Yeah. I do not want to drink any syrup that you tug out of your globe flowers. No, thank you. But, you know, as we've learned, it often takes a couple of tries to get the marketing right. Yeah. Also, the formulation, because that first version was toxic. But luckily, Pemberton lived in the era of coca wine, which we have also discussed in length. <laughs> so he went back to the drawing board, started with a base of potent cocaine-infused wine, added extract of the cola nut, that's cola with a K, uh, which refers to the highly caffeinated seeds of plants from the African rainforest related to cocoa trees, for uh, chocolate, mm -hmm. and created a new formulation called Pemberton's French Wine Coca. Where's the French in there? I'm I'm just struggling to see anything about it. So, you know, we're getting a little closer to marketable, though. Mm, yeah. That's better than syrup tuggles or whatever. <laughs> Globe milking. <laughs> so now you had a balanced bouquet of cocaine, alcohol, and caffeine. Mm. It's perfectly legal, by the way. It was a wonderful time to be an American and a drug addict. <laughs> Pemberton marketed his cocaine-caffeine wine as a nerve tonic, mental aid, headache remedy and a cure for morphine addiction. I don't think he really understood, you know, medicating or, you know, counteracting addiction. Drug replacement is not fixing addiction. Yeah, it's just an addiction swap. Yeah. I am no longer a morphine addict. Now I'm an alcoholic tweaker. <laughs> I don't know if that's better. You're getting shit done. Like those 12-year-olds we talked about cleaning their rooms on coca wine. You're very productive. Right, until they defenestrate you. Right. <laughs> Unfortunately for Pemberton, the anti-alcohol temperance movement in Fulton County, Georgia, had to rain on his narcotic parade. Those teetotellers, as you would call them, were literal buzzkills. Checkers. <laughs> this was the era that would lead to the 18th Amendment that outlawed alcohol, which we covered in episode number 70, Dry America, and would also lead to the 21st Amendment, which promptly reinstated alcohol because sobriety is hard. Yes. And not fun. Mm -mm. Trust me, I, I would know. Don't do it unless you need to. Don't don't try sobriety unless, you know, the other thing isn't working. I, I don't. You probably should, though. <laughs> <laughs> Just throwing that up. Okay, good. As a result of his tweaking the formula, and tweaking in general, he added citric acid to the mixture to tame some of the syrupy sweetness. The final alcohol-free version, still featuring caffeine and cocaine, or at least the less refined version of coca leaves, but they were, you know, still a stimulant, debuted in 1886 at the Jacob Pharmacy in Atlanta. It cost five cents and was sold as a syrup that would be mixed with sparkling water right in front of the customer. So you got your cocaine soda right from the tap, just farm-to-table drug syrup. <laughs> I love that. I love it. No, no, man, don't give me a heavier pour than that. Come on now. Well, it's interesting. It would be eight years before Pemberton would begin bottling and selling the stuff in a form that's similar to what we know today. Right. And even today, Coca-Cola doesn't sell, as we'll get to, they don't sell actual bottles of Coca-Cola. The Coca-Cola company doesn't do that. They send the syrup to manufacturers who then bottle it for them as basically like franchisees, kind of. Mm. Notably, it was a guy named Frank Robinson. He was Pemberton's bookkeeper who coined the name Coca-Cola and designed the iconic swishy logo thing. Hmm. 
That was all of five seconds that he ended up getting a lot of money for, I'm sure. Right. You know, he just tried to unline something and missed. I hope. I wonder if he, I mean, I didn't see if he like ever got any, I don't think he gets a cent per bottle or anything. I think he might've gotten like 50 bucks and, mm. you know, which was probably like a million dollars back then, right. but still. Probably <laughs> got 50 bucks. Oh wait, that would be several hundred thousand dollars. But not nearly what it would be worth now. I mean, right. Jesus Christ. The story does not have a happy ending for the inventor of the drink. Uh, Pemberton would soon be diagnosed with stomach cancer, and desperate to feed his morphine addiction and encouraged by his son, who was also a morphine addict, Pemberton would sell the formula and the bulk of his shares in the company to investor Asa Griggs Candler for either $1,750, $238.98, or $2,300, depending on the source. I couldn't really nail that down. I was going to say, that's a lot of jumping around. Yeah, or, you know, probably none of those, but an amount that was definitely less than the approximately $240 billion the company is currently worth. But, you know, probably enough for a few sacks of morphine, which was all that mattered to him at that point. Right. I guess if I had to choose between all my different sources, I'm going to go with the $238.98 because that is super specific. They're not even rounding up two cents. Someone found a receipt. Yeah. I believe that the $238 was supposed to be for the formula, and then the other dollar amounts may have been for the shares of the company. It's all very mm. arcane. I'm not sure. There's a lot of controversy over how it all went down. But we do know that Pemberton died on August 16th, 1888, without seeing his creation become a national sensation. Which was probably for the best, since he didn't own it anymore. That would have just been painful to watch. Right. And then he would have needed more morphine, which mm. would have gotten us back into the issue we were, you know, he was already struggling with. What was he going to do with all that money anyway? It would just, you could only buy so much smack. <laughs> Or you can only do so much. You can buy a lot of it, but, you know, you better you, pace yourself, buddy. You say that. <laughs> yes, we'll find out. Mm. Did you see there was a asteroid that passed very close to Earth recently? Yeah. I was, like, ready to pull the trigger. <laughs> uh, the heroin packed. I was putting out feelers. Anybody, anybody got to hook up? Asking for a friend. In 1903, the approximately 9 milligrams of cocaine per bottle were removed from the formulation, but the company still does use coca leaves. It's just that the active coca is removed. Aww. Yeah, they're boring coca leaves. It's the shitty version. You know, like in the Safeway, you can get real sugar coke. Mm -hmm. they, I, they should bring out real coca coke. <laughs> I guess you get that on street corners. I was going to say, yeah, if you want to add your own additive, by all means. The current formula for Coca-Cola was housed for many years in the vault of Atlanta's SunTrust Bank, but has now been moved downtown to the World of Coca-Cola Museum, a popular tourist attraction for unpopular people. <laughs> I don't know. I just wouldn't want to hang out with someone who paid to visit the World of Coca-Cola. So now let's talk about the Hatfield to this Coca-Cola McCoy, the Pepsi Corporation. Yes. If you thought that Syrup Tug Flower, or whatever, was a bad name, uh, Pepsi literally started as a beverage called Brad's Drink. <laughs> Remember how I was saying earlier, like, thank your PR person? Jesus, dude, could you not have reached a little further? Like, was, who drinks this a lot? Brad. He was very possessive. <laughs> he just wanted everyone to know. You don't. Hey, 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 hey! That's Brad's drink. Brad's Put that drink. shit down. We we all hate it when you refer to yourself in the third person, Brad. Brad doesn't give a shit. <laughs> you put that drink down. <laughs> Excuse me, are you uh, having a sip of? What's your name? What's your name, sir? Uh, uh, Duncan. Is it, yeah. Is your name Brad? No, no. Maybe back the fuck off. <laughs> Super aggressive dude at a soda fountain. <laughs> what if another Brad came in? He'd have to oh. share the drink. Is that like that's like a Mitch Hedberg bit? There's a bit about that. It's Kit oh, Kat, Reese's, Reese's. Yeah. yeah, I didn't think I'd ever run into you, Reese. 
You're a bully, man. You're a bully, man. <laughs> <laughs> we haven't uh, brought up a Hedberg in a long time. Yeah. High time. Yeah. So Brad's drink was created in New Bern, North Carolina by drugstore owner Caleb Bradham back in 1893, five years after the death of John Pemberton, but still over a decade away from Coca-Cola becoming like a true phenomenon. Mm. The recipe consisted of cola nut extract, similar to Coke, plus rare oils and vanilla. Rare oils? Like it's very <laughs> off of a sloth? What, what, what are we collecting <laughs> yeah. oil from? That's very nonspecific. <laughs> mm. I don't know if I trust it. But it didn't have any uh, like drugs in it, so it was actually much closer to the beverage that we know today than Coca-Cola was. Uh, there was no alcohol or cocaine, just some caffeine and flavoring. The name Pepsi-Cola is a combination of cola from the cola nut, or more accurately, seed, and the word pepsin after the human digestive enzyme of that name, pepsin. Hmm. Bradham believed that the beverage would aid in digestion, which is why he chose that. It's an interesting decision. Bile also aids in digestion. I don't think I would name a soda after it. I don't know. I kind of want to fucking name a soda bile-cola. <laughs> a big sip of Brad's bile? Ho, 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 in addition to slinging gastric soda syrup, Bradham became a successful bank owner and a lieutenant in the North Carolina Naval Militia and eventually authorized franchises in 24 states. Uh, Post-World War I, the price of sugar spiked from 3 cents to 28 cents per pound. So Bradham bought sugar in bulk, assuming the price would continue rising, but instead the price cratered, leaving the Pepsi company with a large volume of extremely overpriced sugar. Pepsi declared bankruptcy in 1923, so Bradham sold the trademark and ended up working back in his drugstore. Hmm. And he would not live to see the ultimate success of his creation. So let that be a lesson to you, kiddies. If you're going to invent a cola, just know you're never going to see it take off. Yeah, cola inventors, not a great track record of living. Mm. Yeah. Pepsi's assets as a company bounced around among investors as Coca-Cola ballooned into the dominant force in the soda space. But Coke's success and resulting arrogance would give Pepsi a foothold. Charles Guth, or Guth, owner of a chain of candy stores with soda fountains, eventually bought the rights to Pepsi because Coke was demanding high prices for its syrup, and he spearheaded a reformulation of the Pepsi recipe. I guess he took out, I don't know, maybe some of the rare oils. Maybe he used less rare oils, which is probably a good strategy. Common oils, probably cheaper. Yeah, and, you know, less hard to get because, you know, milking a sloth for their oils is <laughs> difficult. Does their sloths particularly oily? I, yeah, some of them. I mean, they're more algae-y-y-y. Yeah, I think they're just kind of like uh, mildewy. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if I want sloth-flavored, sloth-mildew-flavored soda. No, thank you. It was at this point that Coke actually had the opportunity to buy Pepsi. Not once, but three times between 1922 and 1933, Coke passed on the offer. Hmm. Oops. Yeah, seriously, you could have taken out your major competition right there. Pepsi's big break would come during the Great Depression, when price-conscious consumers responded positively to Pepsi's new 12-ounce bottles. Even though they were almost twice as big as the standard soda bottles of the day, Pepsi kept the same nickel price, and consumers flocked to the bargain soda. Pepsi rubbed in the pricing discrepancy with jingles like, Pepsi-Cola hits the spot, 12 full ounces, that's a lot, twice as much for a nickel too, Pepsi-Cola is the drink for you. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know how it was sung. I was gonna, I was gonna sing it, but I don't know the melody. I could, I could try. Pepsi Cola hits the spot. Twelve full ounces. That's a lot. Twice as much for a nickel too. Pepsi, Pepsi Cola is, is the drink, drink for you. That was pretty solid. Yeah. We should have been 1940s soda jingleman. 
So also in the 1940s, Pepsi hired the socially progressive Walter Mack as corporation president, and he savvily noted that other soda companies were neglecting entire segments of the soda-buying population. In the 40s, Pepsi got serious about reaching out to an African-American audience, hiring an all-black marketing team, and highlighting prominent African-Americans and their achievements in some of their ads. Hmm. Another all-black team was recruited to travel the country, promoting Pepsi, where they faced threats and intimidation by locals and even the KKK. But overall, the campaign worked. In Chicago, for instance, a visit from the sales team led to a watershed moment. Pepsi eclipsed Coke for the first time as the most popular soft drink in Chicago. Damn. All right. Yeah. Let's not give Mac or Pepsi too much credit for courage, though. At one point, in order to assuage concerns that white consumers were being ignored by the Pepsi marketing operation, Mac reassured 500 bottlers that they didn't need to worry because, quote, we don't want it to become known as a inward drink, unquote. Ow. So, you know, progressive meant something a little bit different back then. Yeah. <laughs> progressive means progressively less asshole. <laughs> Basically, if you weren't actively assaulting minorities, you were progressive. Right. Liberal snowflake. <laughs> Another big boost for Pepsi came in the 50s when actress Joan Crawford married the president of the Pepsi Corporation, Alfred N. Steele, and he convinced her to become an official spokesperson. Hmm. Did that work? Did she sell more things? Yeah, Joan Crawford, very popular. She uh, sold a ton of Pepsi. It helps if you have, you know, someone famous in the family. Nice. And, you know, sexy, because someone famous who's ugly as sin, less useful. I'm assuming she's sexy. I, I can't even picture Joan Crawford. What did Joan Crawford look like? No. Let me see. Huh. I don't... Hmm. Well, you know, not my type. <laughs> Holy crap. That's maybe this is a bad picture. Yeah, I think that's a bad picture because she looks like a psychotic substitute teacher. <laughs> she looks like a substitute teacher who like dissects your frog for you on you. That mullet. Woo. Wow. Yeah. Look at the Joan Crawford mullet. That's intense. <laughs> she had crazy eyes. Yeah, she had helter skelter eyes. She should definitely be more on the Coke bandwagon, I would think. <laughs> but judging from these pictures. I mean, I think she was more on the Coke bandwagon. She just happens to be married to the guy from Pepsi. This is, you know, beauty is subjective. It is. Yeah. Hmm. And generational, apparently. She's probably a very great actress. Sure. I don't want to know all about Joan Crawford. Crawford became one of Hollywood's most prominent movie stars and one of the highest paid women in the United States. Shit. Good for her. She could finance that crack addiction. I was going to say <laughs> Maybe get a better haircut. Mm. So on the Coca-Cola side during this time, uh, Coca-Cola was thriving. Their jingles and marketing strategies might not have been as innovative as Pepsi's, but they tended to be effective. Of course, my favorite ad campaign was from 1886 when they debuted what I believe is their greatest slogan, quote, drink Coca-Cola. And then? Yeah, that's it. Wow. That's the slogan. I wonder how much someone got paid for that little gem. Remember, good morning. Have you used Paris soap? Yeah. Almost as good. What do you want to bet me a Brit wrote that shit? <laughs> Drink Coca-Cola. One million dollars. I like it. It's very straightforward. Yeah, it's, yeah. Yeah. It's a little aggressive. I was going to say, it's in the command tone. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's an imperative. Yeah. <laughs> you know what they left off the end was, or else. Yeah. <laughs> Drink Coca-Cola now. Bitch. <laughs> <laughs> Coca-Cola also helped popularize and mainstream the current incarnation of Santa Claus, with which we're all familiar. We've talked about this as well. Coca-Cola did not, as many people believe, invent the modern concept of Santa Claus. But in the 1920s, they did take the character that was created by cartoonist Thomas Nast, and they popularized the figure. Mm. By the 1930s, Coca-Cola had actually hired 
artist Haddon Sunblom, I don't, wow. Yeah. It's on Lord of the Rings shit. Mm. To further soften the image of the Thomas Nast version, Sunblom created iconic paintings inspired by the text of the Twas the Night Before Christmas poem, depicting Santa with the classic stout figure, the laughter lines, the beard, the rosy cheeks, and forever linking Santa Claus to the Coca-Cola Corporation, and in the process, selling a whole crap load of Coke. Yeah, and then, you know, later on, linking somehow Santa Claus with polar bears. That's right. I forgot yeah. about the polar bear thing. The rivalry really heated up in the latter half of the 20th century with the famed Cola Wars. In the 1970s, Pepsi debuted its Pepsi Challenge, which we discussed in that previous episode. Right. It was super effective. Turns out that one very effective marketing strategy is to point out that your product is better and that people prefer it. <laughs> Team Pepsi. I love that, that. That's your strategy. Ours is better. People like it more. That's not a strategy. That's just a fact. Yeah. Yeah. Better than a command. Yeah. yeah. They didn't go with drink Pepsi. Whore. <laughs> Son of a bitch. They... I'm really enjoying adding expletives and just pejoratives to anything that is a marketing statement from now on. In fact, I'm going to go around reading marketing slogans and just adding fucking horrifying sentences. Just do it, fucker. <laughs> just do it, whoremonger. So in response, Coca-Cola created and released New Coke. And you can hear that story in the previously referenced episode of our podcast. And by the title of that podcast episode, you can probably tell it was not a big hit. Hmm. It was called Spectacular Failures. The next phase in the battle was recruiting celebrity soldiers for the Cola Wars, as both companies went after big-name stars. Pepsi, as you might remember, recruited Michael Jackson back in the 80s, while Coke countered with Paula Abdul. Oh, Kind of lopsided battle there. Yeah. <laughs> it's not really a battle as so much as somebody hitting the other person with an aluminum baseball bat repeatedly. Although in 1984, I don't know if you remember this story, Michael Jackson's hair famously did spontaneously combust while filming a Pepsi commercial. And then also later, he molested a bunch of kids. Yeah, there were a couple of downspikes in, uh, what would you call it, marketability. <laughs> Little dips. Yeah. So, you know, I guess we can give at least a moral victory to Paula Abdul. To my knowledge, she hasn't molested anyone. Yeah, but she got drunk a lot and, and did fuck a lot of almost underage backup dancers. That's just charity work. Good for her. I support it. It's just charity work. I wish I had been one of her victims. Yes. <laughs> she was hot back in the day. And she was. Back when she was dancing with that cat. Remember the uh, opposites attract? Yeah. So we won't rehash the entire new Coke debacle, but what could have been absolutely disastrous for Coke actually ended up being an accidental victory in the long run because the reintroduction of Coca-Cola Classic created a huge nostalgic demand for the product, and Coke has been on top ever since. Wasn't there also, like, you know, Pepsi hired Ray Charles, and then there was, like, Stevie Wonder versus Ray, Ray Charles or some shit? There may have been. I mean, like I said, the Cola Wars were cutthroat. Yeah, because I, I remember as a, as a youth... As a ute, hearing Ray Charles going, you got the right one, baby. Uh -huh. Yeah, well, I remember that in school, you had to, like, pick a side. People were hardcore about the Cola Wars. At my school, it was like you were a Pepsi person or a Coke person, and you picked your team, hmm. and then you stuck with your team, and you definitely antagonized the other side. Hmm. I think I went for the underdog. I also liked Pepsi better, but I definitely liked that they were the underdog, too, because all the Coke kids were just a bunch of dicks. Hmm. Yeah, fucking Coke people are the worst. <laughs> You hear that, Discord? <laughs> you hear that majority of the world? <laughs> We're not doing ourselves any favors. No, uh, who is this we? <laughs> I didn't fair. say anything. <laughs> Touche. 
So today, Coca-Cola still holds a sizable advantage over Pepsi in market share, with around 45% of the entire soda market compared to Pepsi's 20-something. In fact, back in 2010, it was revealed that for the first time ever, not only did Coke outsell Pepsi, but Diet Coke by itself also outsold Pepsi, which meant that Coke held both the number one and number two most popular soda spots. E. If you ever doubt the effectiveness of marketing, just think of the fact that in blind taste tests, Pepsi trounces Coke, yet Coke has always been the established market leader based on branding and publicity. Wow, that makes me kind of mad at humanity once again. There are certain areas, though, where Pepsi outsells Coke. It's just like very specific spots. Like in Buffalo, New York, Pepsi spanks Coke, outselling them two to one. Hmm. They really love their Pepsi. I mean, if we go with your school uh, analogy, they probably just knifed all of the people <laughs> who drink Coke and they're all dead. No one left for but Pepsi there. Yeah, you don't need influencers. You just need the meanest fans. Yeah. Midnight Masses, if you meet someone who happens to be a, a fan of a different podcast, just kill them. <laughs> I was going to say something a little less horrific, but pretty much up there, which was, Miffy fans, go get yourself some human growth hormone. Start bulking up. We're going to send you out into the field. Miffy army. Yep. However, Pepsi does get the last laugh in hmm. the cola wars by winning the battle of global revenue for the two companies. Huh. Both companies have diversified. They now own a ton of other brands. I don't know if you're aware of this, but Coke owns Sprite, Dasani, Vitamin Water, Odwalla, but PepsiCo, in particular, owns some of the most popular beverages and snacks on the market. Hmm. Doritos, Lay's, 7-Up, Cheetos, Captain Crunch, Rice-A-Roni, Cracker Jack, Gatorade, Quaker, Mountain Dew. The list goes on. Pepsi is stacked. Sweet. Holy fuck. Yeah. All right. So I guess you could say that Coke won this particular battle, mm. but Pepsi won the Cola Wars. Nicely done, Pepsi. We yeah. support you. Diversify your portfolio. Indeed. As they say. Mm-hmm. So we sort of mentioned this briefly, but the most famous of all American feuds was instigated, as most great rivalries are, by a dispute over a pig. Say what now? I don't, do you remember the Pig War of 1859? We covered that back in episode 18, Pointless Petty Wars. Yeah, I, I do remember there's something being about like a, 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 there was one about like a pig in some island or off the west coast somewhere in the north there was also a camel situation yeah. lots of animals have surprisingly started wars mm -hmm. uh, in this case 17 years after that pig war now in 1878 obviously no one had learned any lessons because a man named randall mccoy would kick off a brutal decades-long conflict by accusing the paternal leader of a rival clan of hog theft a little backstory so the hatfields led by timber magnate william anderson hatfield also known as devil ants lived in Mingo County on the West Virginia side of the Tug Fork River, a tributary of the Big Sandy River, while the McCoys, led by Randolph Ole Randall McCoy, lived on the Kentucky side of the Tug Fork. And just by saying these words, I feel a mullet sprouting on my head and attraction to my own cousins blossoming deep in my nether regions. <laughs> this is the most hillbilly of hillbilly fairy tales. I, I, I kind of feel like I want to read the sentence you just read, but in my redneck voice. You know, West Fork or the Kentucky side or the Virginia? Both families were involved in the moonshine trade, but the Hatfields were wealthier as a result of Devil Anse's timber business, and at various times he would even employ some McCoys. Only the most traitorous of McCoys, obviously. Truly. No self-respecting McCoy would work for a Hatfield. At least not after the pig debacle. Oh, yeah. So about that, pigs were often marked with specific ear notches to indicate ownership. And our story begins on a sunny day in 1878. I don't honestly know that it was sunny. I'm, I'm embellishing for story. It's the Ozarks. It could have gone either way. I, just, I want to paint a picture here. Yeah. 
So on that particular warm, sunny day, there was a, there was a light breeze from the east. Ma, 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 ma. Randall McCoy was visiting Floyd Hatfield, Devil Ants' cousin, and he spotted among the pigs a particular pig sporting the particular McCoy ear notches. Hmm. Floyd denied having poached the pig, and old Randall sued. So it started fairly reasonably. They were facing off in small claims court before facing off on any type of battlefield. Mm. This was less civil war and more Judge Judy. But lawyering up doesn't make for a great rivalry story, so it gets better. Okay, good. So the jury for the trial was split among the Hatfields and McCoys. Apparently there weren't 12 other families in the entire Tug Fork region to choose from. And the primary witness was a guy named Bill Statton. He was a McCoy who was married to a Hatfield. <laughs> the presiding justice of the peace for the trial was Anderson Preacher Ants Hatfield, cousin of Devil Ants. What the hell is this ants thing? I'm sorry, but like devil ants, I was willing to just gloss over, but now preacher ants? That's the way they got their nicknames. Rumor was that devil ants actually received his nickname to distinguish him from preacher ants, who was more like righteous and God-fearing. But why ants? Not ants like crawling on the ground ants. Okay. It's A-N-S-E. All right, that's what I kept picturing was like, you know, army ants, devil, devil ants, ants, preacher ants. Preacher ants. ants. It was like a Pixar movie or something. Yeah. Yeah. So as you can tell, this was an impartial and perfectly reasonable judicial scenario. Oh, absolutely. Preacher Ants may have been more righteous and God-fearing than Devil Ants, but he was still loyal to the family. Preacher ruled in favor of the Hatfields, shockingly, though he could certainly argue that he based his ruling on the evidence because the previously referenced witness, Bill Statton, had chosen the path of least resistance. He decided not to antagonize his Hatfield wife and testified that the pig had not been stolen. Hmm. Yeah. I don't know how he was witness to a non-theft. Yeah. <laughs> yes, Your Honor. I saw it all not happen. <laughs> that pig went nowhere. I watched that man not steal that pig all day long. <laughs> Even though Staten was a McCoy by blood, after testifying against his kin, he would be disowned by the family and later murdered by brothers Sam and Paris McCoy. Jeebus. So I guess we've moved out of the reasonable judicial phase. <laughs> they took it out of small claims court and now we're escalating bleeding in the streets <laughs> that pig was like john wick's dog oh jesus <laughs> don't don't mess with a man's pig mm -mm. the next phase of the feud was more cinematic or maybe more literary shakespearean even in 1880 at an election day gathering a pair of star-crossed lovers didst meet in fair tug fork where we lay our scene <laughs> it was at that romantic moonlit political rally that 18 year old johnson uh, john c hatfield that was his nickname Son of Devil Ants himself, first set eyes on the daughter of old Randall McCoy, Roseanne. Mm. I'm embellishing again with the moonlight. It could have been cloudy. I, I don't know, but I'm going to keep doing that. <laughs> yeah, I, I figured as much. Throw in random weather. Right. Because I set in the scene. On that misty morn. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Just to make it more tangible. The young lovers would get frisky at the political rally. Boning at the election office, a tale as old as time. <laughs> tale as old as time. And afterward, Rosanna, fearing retribution from her clan, would take refuge with the Hatfields. Rosanna also took preggers, as they say in southern caricatures. <laughs> at which point her loving Romeo, John C. Hatfield, up and left her for her cousin Nancy. Damn. Romance. Shakespearean romance. It's funny because the story of Jauncey and Rosanna is still like super often portrayed as a romantic tale of forbidden love. That's, mm. You'll see they've made movies out of it. And it really was just a sleazy dude who like banged a chick and left. 
I mean, it sounds more like two teenagers were like, wow, this will really piss off my parents. And then they realized this is maybe a step too far. Well, it seems like she was definitely into him. It, is a tale mm. as old. it was a tale as old as time. It was like, a, you know, he was a player. According to the blog Appalachian Lady, written by an anonymous woman who claims to be a Hatfield descendant, and she seems credible enough, I buy it, it was not exactly a love story for the ages. Quote, Jauncey was still seeing other girls the entire time he was seeing Rosanna. The truth of the matter is that Jauncey did not love Rosanna and certainly had no intention of marrying her. It is said that Rosanna never got over losing Jauncey and their baby and that she died of a broken heart shortly before her 30th birthday. Given that there were no real medical records kept back then, we are not privy to the exact cause of Rosanna McCoy's death. The old-timers who told me the real story said that she committed suicide, since that is what uh, died of a broken heart meant back then. Un- unquote. Seems legit. Yeah, I'm sure nobody on her side of the family killed her for being a philandering whore. <laughs> Appalachian Lady also dishes on the media portrayals of the rivalry. I don't know if you've seen, they've made a few movies and like made-for-TV things. Hmm. Of Devil Ants, who was portrayed by Kevin Costner in one of the movie versions, quote, he also looked absolutely nothing like Kevin Costner, <laughs> as you can see in the photo at left. Hmm. And uh, there was a photo, and yes. Not so much. He's an ugly fucker. Okay. <laughs> He's not. No Kevin Costner. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty much assuming Rosanna was pining after some buck-toothed, jackal-jawed jackass anyway. Yeah. Quote, the actors portraying the family are far more attractive than the actual Hatfield family, naturally, since they are actors, which is something my family finds endlessly amusing. Unquote. So they have a good sense of humor about this. They really like that. <laughs> like, this show is a farce. We are way uglier than that. <laughs> I would find that endlessly depressing, honestly. <laughs> Be like, Jesus Christ. If Miffy ever gets made into a movie and someone completely hot, some son of, like, yeah. you know, Robert Downey Jr. plays me, I'd be like, lies! <laughs> yeah. I demand Jonah Hill. I demand a downgrade. <laughs> In an 1882 altercation that would become known as the Paw Paw Tree Incident, the McCoys enacted some revenge on a totally uninvolved and innocent party, Anse's brother and Jauncey's uncle, Ellison Hatfield. The McCoy boys, Tolbert Famer, who was also known as Farmer, and Bud, stabbed Ellison 26 times and then shot him. <laughs> Just as like an exclamation point. Yeah. I don't Well, he still didn't die. At least Holy. not right away. It took a while. So that was a tough bastard. They stabbed him 26 times, and he was like, what else you got? And and then they shot him, and he was like, okay, that's, that's, that's enough. That is enough. The boys were apprehended by law enforcement, but a posse formed by devil ants intercepted the prisoners on the way to the Pikefield jail. Ants decreed that if his brother survived, the boys would be allowed to live. Spoiler alert. There are no happy endings in this story. Hey, I'm, not, I'm not holding out hope. When Ellison succumbed to his plethora of wounds... The McCoy boys were dragged across to the West Virginia side of the tug fork, tied to pawpaw bushes, and filled full of lead. I was actually going to say, when he succumbed to his plethora of new orifices. <laughs> it was a diverse... Yeah. You, you, you want to keep it fresh. Yeah. You know, you can't... If you stab... You can only stab a guy so many times before he's like, I get it. I get it. <laughs> I get it. You have knives. We, we understand. Over the succeeding years, the feud would expand and drag in additional participants. It would become a territorial dispute, larger than the two families, and would even inspire the governors of both of the states to threaten to send their militias to quell the rivalry. Residents and politicians and law enforcement from both Kentucky and West Virginia rallied around whichever family resided in their state. Hmm. 
So it became kind of a symbol more of like almost patriotism because remember back then the federal government wasn't as strong and so you were more like tied to your state, which now we're kind of going back to. Right. But everyone's very like invested in their state. And so it became not just the Hatfields and McCoys, but like Kentucky versus West Virginia. Mm. Still strikes me as you're just rallying around a group of morons. Like it's, eh. It was like a football game. It was yeah. seriously like a sporting event where just everyone was picking sides and like F the other team, even though we've never met a single one of them. And we'd probably all get along because we're all hicks. It doesn't matter. We all, we none of us have teeth. Come on. <laughs> you like chowing tobacco? So do I. You like pigs when it's warm enough? The most dramatic and infamous incident, the one that brought national attention to the feud and captured the imagination of America, was the notorious New Year Massacre in 1888. A group of Hatfields surrounded the McCoy residence and pumped rounds into the farmhouse as the McCoys returned fire from inside. It was a full-on shootout. Hmm. To break the standoff, the Hatfields set fire to the house, sending McCoys scurrying into the freezing woods. Two of them would be gunned down, while others would suffer frostbite from spending the night cowering in the cold. Old Rannell did survive, but his wife Sarah was caught and savagely beaten. Eee. In response to the massacre, warrants were issued and a posse was formed to track down the Hatfields. The posse would succeed in killing one of the primary aggressors, uh, Vance Hatfield, and after a fight with Ants and his crew, the posse would apprehend the rest of the gang and many of Devil Ants' sons would be put on trial. Controversy over whether the men could be extradited to Kentucky escalated all the way to the Supreme Court where it would eventually be decided in favor of the McCoys. Eight Hatfields were found guilty, seven of them sentenced to life in prison, and the eighth, the mentally challenged illegitimate son of first cousins Ellison and Harriet Hatfield, a man known as Ellison Cottontop Mounts, was executed by hanging. So they went Texas with it. They went super villain on it. Right. Like, let's take the one guy who <laughs> kind of probably didn't know what had happened, and let's kill that guy. You have to laugh because otherwise it's just so horrifying. You're just like, what? Why? It gets even worse. So public execution was illegal in Kentucky. Like public execution. Mm. You could still execute people. You just No one's supposed to watch. Right. So what they did was they erected a small fence around the gallows, which was then set at the bottom of a hill so that the scene could be easily viewed by the thousands of onlookers seated on the surrounding hillside. I feel this is a letter of the law, <laughs> if not the spirit moment. Yeah. That's pretty creative. Son of a biscuit. Yeah, That's hilarious. I love that thousands showed up. It's just with like picnic time and dude, we you will lose 45 minutes in traffic because some asshole is trying to fucking take an Instagram of some person's car wrapped around another car. Yeah. Like rubber, rubbernecking isn't that much different, I guess. Yeah. But I don't know. Like if it's scheduled, that's something that at least you didn't know was gonna happen and you're kind of surprised and like what's going on here. Plus it inconveniences you. So you just want to take a look at like this better be serious. Have you ever had that thought? Which is terrible. I feel like the worst person in the world because sometimes <laughs> I'm sitting in traffic and the only thing I can think is like whatever is up there, someone better be dead. I think it frequently, and I don't think less of myself. I don't like people. That's terrible. And then as I go by, I see, like, you know, they're just all standing there on their cell phones or something, and I'm like, no, fuck you. Yeah. Then I just want to swerve to the left and right. like, take out one one leg, at least, <laughs> to just make it worthwhile. You bastards. But then the worst is, like, if I drive by and, like, there's it's on fire or something, I'm like, oh, my God. And then I feel terrible and think that I'm a bad person. And, I, you know, I'm right. <laughs> right, because you caused <laughs> you caused that fire. Yeah, no, I mean, it's just, you shouldn't be, like, I don't know, it's, it's, it, obviously doing terrible things is terrible, but, like, wishing terrible things is also not great. There are enough of us, I can wish whatever the fuck I want, it doesn't mean it's gonna happen. Yeah, I guess as long as my wishes don't come true. Hmm. 
Oh, Lord. <laughs> Hear my prayer. <laughs> oh, God. It is me. The Pope. I have been stuck in this traffic for so long. Please, make that car explode. Mil grazie. Oof. <laughs> Feels more real. Yeah. <laughs> it's rough. <laughs> we only have time for one final uh, rivalry. We'll do another episode at some point. There's so many rivalries out there. So many yeah. great rivalries. Yeah. This one is less, uh, no blood was shed. Less serious. Then why are we even, what the fuck is the point of this? I liked it. I was interested. I wanted to learn about this. Okay, fine. So I've always been intrigued by the idea of regional foods and local delicacies. Because the thing is that, like, if a food becomes popular enough, it's going to spread everywhere. Right. Unless it's something no one wants to eat, in which case, yeah, keep it to your area. Like, haggis. Scottish people are like, you can only get haggis in Scotland. And every other country is like, yeah, good. <laughs> That's we, why we built the ocean. We've we quarantined that shit. Yeah. Do not try to board a plane with haggis. <laughs> Remove your shoes and laptops and surrender any food with guts in it. Jesus. <laughs> it's the durian fruit of fucking Celtic world. Yeah. Do you have a favorite uh, regional dish? Um, well, there's clam chowder. There's... Uh, well, so, like, clam chowder being, like, the East Coast, like... Uh, they have East Coast clam chowder, but they also have, like, West Coast clam chowder. I like the one without tomato in it. I like the white... So there's white and, is it called red? Mm. Yeah, white and red chowder. You know, uh, West Coast is mostly white chowder. Yeah. Do they do, is the East Coast mostly red? I don't know. Huh. Um, I actually like red clam chowder, I have to say. It's pretty good. You've had it? Yeah, they have it at uh, down at Cafe Rio. Oh, wow, okay. Because it sounded like you had no idea where it came from or even if it existed or what was in it. You were just like, <laughs> red chowder, Why sweet. do you presume my ignorance? <laughs> Why do you presume mine? <laughs> well... It's, it's fair. Roll the tape. <laughs> <laughs> Let me count it the ways. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of shit I don't know, but yeah. that's one thing I do. Okay. I've had it. And tasty. Yeah. So some famous regional dishes include Chicago-style pizza, mm -hmm. which is pizza-flavored casserole, and New York pizza, which is pizza-flavored cardboard. Yeah. And then there are Philadelphia cheesesteaks, which are fucking disgusting. Really? Yeah. I think they're tasty. If you've ever had a hot dog and thought to yourself, I really enjoy this form factor, but I wish it were way less healthy, a cheesesteak is for you. I think that frequently. Here's how you make a cheesesteak. So first, you give up on life. <laughs> then you lower your standards and redefine the concept of edible food. And then squirt cheese whiz on chopped meats. <laughs> it's foul. Yeah. I, I've found some tasty versions of it, but yeah. The, no, the it's one... probably tasty. I mean, it's just like the worst thing in the world, though. You're talking to a man who can down a bottle of scotch in a sitting. I mean, no, it's, like a, it's like a deep fried Twinkie or something. Like, I'm oh. sure it probably tastes good, but oh, God, it's just gross. Mm. The Philadelphia cheesesteak was invented, or I guess assembled, in Philadelphia on the corner of 9th Street and Passionk Avenue in 1933 by brothers and hot dog vendors Pat and Harry Olivieri. The meat is usually ribeye beef slathered with gooey cheese and your choice of toppings, such as sautéed onions, peppers, mushrooms, and maybe some ketchup if you're looking for the full evacuation therapy experience. <laughs> if you're this, on a cheesesteak cleanse. <laughs> this is a Mad Dr. Monroe-approved treatment for insanity. <laughs> Incidentally, Cheese Whiz is now standard on Philly cheesesteaks, but as Cheese Whiz wasn't invented until 1953, the original cheese was most likely provolone, which sounds way better to me. I like provolone's actually pretty good. 
Yeah, I've, the only ones I've ever had were made with provolone, not cheese whiz. It's really that yellow, slimy, fake cheese that makes me wretch. That's the standard cheesesteak now is with cheese whiz, which just, oh, God. Why would you do that to yourself on purpose? All right. Yeah. Quote, it wasn't until the 1940s that melted cheese was added to the steak sandwich by a drunk manager, Joe Lorenzo, at one of Pat's locations on Ridge Avenue. Of course it was. Tracks. <laughs> the sandwich became so popular among self-loathing Philadelphians that Pat would open his own restaurant called Pat's King of Steaks on the site of his former hot dog stand. Hmm. And I'm just going to keep insulting people who eat cheesesteaks. I was going to say, I'm just waiting for <laughs> some group, some mob of Philadelphians to just come at you and just beat the ever-living shit We do out get you. a good amount of Pennsylvania downloads. So. Really? All right. Oops. Pat's restaurant was killing the cheesesteak game for 36 years until a brash young cook named Joseph Vinto opened a competing restaurant named Gino's directly across the street. That is ballsy. It's also ballsy that he named the restaurant after no one, just for the hell of it. His name was not Gino. He didn't know any Genos. He had seen the name on the back of the building's door. Someone had scrawled Gino, and he just went with it. It was Gino's. That is the dumbest shit I've ever heard. <laughs> it could have been fucking Beaver. Yeah. And he feel like Beavers. And whatever was in his line of sight. <laughs> you don't want to know what his kids' names were. It was bad news. There was open sewer, no outlet, stop. It's just funny you should bring up his kids. So he eventually had a son and named him Gino <laughs> to retcon the decision yeah, and like make it seem more legit. Yeah. Oh, God. Speaking of questionable decisions, Joseph would later explain his rationale for opening a cheesesteak restaurant directly across from a famous cheesesteak restaurant by saying, quote, if you want to sell cheesesteaks, you go where they eat cheesesteaks. I mean, that's one strategy. Like, right. you could also say, if you want to sell a lot of cheesesteaks, go to places where they don't already sell a lot of cheesesteaks. Clearly not a huge fan and or student of economics. Or just, like, aggressive. This cheesesteak is so fucking delicious. I have to I, put it out of business. I have to destroy this place. <laughs> I, I have to destroy what I love. It's, it's like the Viking coffee drinking version. Like Thanos. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus. Well, no, he hated things. He wanted everybody to go. It was more the Thor drinking coffee thing. It was just like, I love this drink. Smash. Like, yeah. that's what it is. It's, you know, I love this cheesesteak. I will kill all cheesesteaks. Like, he literally put it across the street. They are facing each other. Right. This, it's like a Wild West standoff on two street corners. It's pretty intense. <whistles> Gino's shop is bigger, glitzier, and has bright neon lights. He really went all out to, like, you know, I guess you're the new guy on the block. Right. And famously, Gino's does not chop up their meat. It is sliced. That's hmm. a big deal, apparently. Also, Gino's cuts their sandwiches in half, as opposed to Pat's, which leaves the sandwiches intact. Hmm. So, you know, one chops the bread and the other chops the meat. You can choose your chop. Okay. Gino's has always been the more aggressive and glitzier shop. Joseph would put up signs like, uh, quote, uh, the best and ace beats king. And no need to order double meat, walk across the street. And other rhyming diss tracks. It's like a, it's like a rap battle. Only not. Customers perpetuated the rivalry. If you're a Philly resident, you probably have a strong opinion. Either you prefer Pat's or Geno's, or you strongly believe that the entire rivalry is stupid tourist nonsense, and you couldn't care less because you do not eat disgusting cheese whiz sandwiches. But for those who cared, it was like picking sides in a football game. Just the fans of each team standing on opposite sides of the street and glaring at their hated rivals. Getting fatter by the second. 
I figure it's played up like probably mostly the customers just ignored each other and ate sandwiches at their favorite place because most people aren't insane assholes. Right. Like fucking Joseph was. <laughs> By all accounts, the rivalry was initially very real, but the two shops quickly realized that all of the publicity was good for business and played up the animosity. In 1999, the two owners faced off on the Dr. Phil show, and at the prompting of the non-real doctor, they sampled each other's sandwiches and both immediately spit out the single bite. Not Dr. Phil quipped, the Mideast crisis is nothing compared to this. And was immediately beheaded. I was going to say. I wish. (laughs) Another area where I wish horrible things, but then I don't feel bad about it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Lord. Oh, Lord. (laughs) Please chop his head. <laughs> Mil grazie. In December 2005, Joseph Vento of Gino's posted a sign that read, This is America. When ordering, please speak English. E. It stayed up after his death in 2011 because his son, who was gay, by the way, initially chose to respect his father's dying wish, which was to keep up the sign. Wow. That was, imagine having an openly gay son and being like, Listen, I can accept your lifestyle choices. As long as you promise to never stop discriminating against foreigners. (laughs) You get that we have selective bigotry in this family, right? The sign, however, was quietly removed by Joseph's son in 2016, around the time of the Democratic Convention in Philadelphia. Mm. His his son was like, I'm going to remove this sign because it's the right thing to do. Five years later, now that it is financially beneficial to do so. Quite a hero. Mm. In 2016, journalist Helen Ubiñas documented her experience of ordering a cheesesteak at Gino's in Spanish. The result was anticlimactic. Oh, okay. They they gave her sandwiches. Okay. Yeah. If you are a non-English speaker in Philadelphia who also hates your own stomach, you can now make terrible decisions and order sandwiches next to the loyal patrons of a historically bigoted restaurant. Dude, every single time you make fun of this fucking sandwich and people from Philadelphia, I just, I hear our our downloads going down by one every time. I'm also making fun of all the people who ate there when it had the sign up. So fuck those people too. Well, yeah, those people can go fuck themselves. I got it. Even more controversially, in 2019, Geno's debuted a mascot named Wizzy. (laughs) Of course they did. That's pretty terrible too. That's almost as bad as the sign, gotta be honest. I would have leaned into it and made it like a, a, a squirt bottle of, of like cheese whiz that's just like, it has his back to you just whizzing all over your cheese stick. Yeah, they had considered other uh, renditions of the name, including Whizhead, uh, but the name Wizzy stuck. Yeah, you would have had British people laughing up their sleeves. Whizhead, that's like Pisshead, isn't it? It's <laughs> pretty much the same in America, yeah. I think, yeah. yeah. Quote, Wizzy was catchy. It's fresh. It's hip, said Vinto. it's hip you know what isn't fresh or hip the words fresh and hip Hip. (laughs) (laughs) so i read a bunch of reviews and the consensus seems to be that gino's makes a better sandwich uh, but i don't know it's kind of like choosing between a kick and a punch (laughs) they're both painful but you might as well choose the one that isn't delivered by a racist fair enough so that was all we got for rivalries for now. Just some fun ones and uh, one that was maybe a little bloody. And then the other ones, I think, were palate cleansers. And next time we'll do, you know, dive into some more vicious rivalries. But I like having the, the silly ones, too. Yeah, I do, too. Although, you know, me with my dark sense of humor, the Hatfields and McCoys was just as funny to me. It was just like, fucking really? All over a pig? Jesus. Yeah. I mean, I think the pig was just an excuse. Yeah. They wanted, they were looking for reasons yeah. to cross the old tug fork. It's never not going to sound like a euphemism. 
So we promised that we would do a patron shout out, and I want to do that real quick. We've got some new patrons. We want to call out Tomo and JV and Sam, June, Emily, Josh. Thank you guys so much for joining. We will be calling out more patrons as they come. Um, we've got some more, and I don't have their names, but we will call them out on the next one. Yeah, Llama Trauma Thirteen. Yes, joined up. Um, Rogue, thank you for show, for for joining up. We appreciate your time and your money. And then we said we were going to read reviews at the end, and I think we didn't do one last time, so we'll do two this time. Yeah. And I had promised to do one from out of the country, so we'll start with that. Here's a super short one. It just says, "Top stuff. This has me laughing and learning. Two of my favorite things, and that was Uber Dunk Two from the United Kingdom. And then five stars." Miffy is a fantastic show packed with interesting information about a variety of topics. They've covered everything from weird ocean creatures to Disney to ghosts, so you never know what will be up next. The hosts have great chemistry and bounce off each other flawlessly. It sounds sexual. Yeah. <laughs> there isn't a lot of annoying off-topic fluff, and everything is well-researched and accurate, so you know the facts you're hearing are actually facts. And that was from Lydia. Oh, in America, we know Lydia. She's from Kentucky. Yes. The moderator of our Discord. Indeed. Are you Hatfield or McCoy? I know. Maybe Lydia could tell us more about it. I wonder how close she is to the old tug. Stop saying <laughs> the name of the river, please. Yeah. All right. Well, so you've had reviews, you've had plugs for Patreon, and you've heard of the Hatfield and McCoys and Cokes and Pepsis and all of the things. So you know what to do. Rate, rep, review. You go to Instagram. You interact with Shane. You tell people we're awesome. You go to Spotify. You rate five stars. And you wish you could tell people that we're awesome, but you just put five stars because Spotify is still a jackass app out there. For... They also don't list the episode numbers. I found out when yeah. I tried to tell you episode numbers, and you're like, yeah, I don't have those. Yeah. That's crazy. You got random-ass dates, and that's it. Yes. So, anyway, uh, go do that. And knowledge is power. Sleep is overrated. Wait, what? <laughs> What the fuck did you just do? <laughs> and you went along with it. I was on autopilot. No, I totally no. I made it halfway through that and was like, "I've been hoodwinked." <laughs> you said it. You said it. And we're like, "Wait, fuck what?" <laughs> it wasn't halfway through. You said the sentence. <laughs> oh, Jesus, we're morons. Okay, so. As per usual, and forever after, knowledge is power. Sleep is overrated. Knowledge is <laughs> stuff. Unlikely in this room. <laughs> <laughs>